good morning, church family. If you have a Bible, um, I would invite you to open it to 1 Peter chapter number 3. 1 Peter chapter number 3. Uh, we're going to continue this morning in a series that we started several weeks back now, um, studying through the letter of 1 Peter, dealing with the topic of exiles, um, what it was like in the context that Peter was writing for those who were dispersed, for those who were uh, away from their homes, away from their families, those who were living in foreign lands as aliens, as exiles because of their faith in Jesus Christ. So 1 Peter will keep traveling through there. We are chapter 3, and we'll start in just a moment in verse number 8. So open your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 8. I was reading a little bit um, this week as I was preparing for the sermon, and I, I came across a, a story that was shared by a guy named Ronald Meredith in his book, Hurrying Big for Little Reasons. He describes one quiet night in early spring, and here's how he describes it. He says, suddenly out of the night came the sound of wild geese flying. I ran to the house and breathlessly announced the excitement I felt. What is to compare with wild geese across the moon? It might have ended there except for the sight of our tame mallards on the pond. They heard the wild call they had once known. The honking of the night sent little arrows of prompting deep into their wild yesterdays. Their wings fluttered a feeble response. The urge to fly, to take their place in the sky for which God made them, was sounding in their feathered breast, but they never raised from the water. The matter had been settled long ago. The corn of the barnyard was too tempting. Now their desire to fly only made them uncomfortable. Temptation is always enjoyed at the price of losing the capacity for flight. I read this story and it began to resonate in my heart as I was thinking about what Peter was writing to those in the context of 1 Peter. I thought about some of the things that Peter had already written to them in the beginning of this letter. You'll remember some of these phrases, but he wrote to them, they were born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, praise God. And this wasn't of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And Peter wrote to them, they were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. I also thought about the context of this letter and who Peter was writing to as we think about them as exiles, enduring suffering for their faith, cast out from their homes, abandoned by their families, and cursed by their communities. I thought about how Peter reminded them to endure this type of suffering. They were to endure suffering at the hands of the government as Christ-like citizens. They were to endure suffering at the hands of unjust bosses as Christ-like employees. They were to endure suffering at the hands of their families as Christ-like spouses. And this moment quickly turned from Peter's audience to my own heart. And all I could begin to think about is how I would typically respond to what Peter is telling them. 
I thought phrases like this, you, you want me to endure suffering by submitting to governing authorities, even those who would stop the cause of Jesus? You're out of your mind, Peter. You want me to endure suffering by submitting to a, to a boss or authority above me in my workplace or my community, even if it means I'm being treated unjustly? You're out of your mind, Peter. I'm not doing that. You want me to submit to my spouse, even if it means my life will suffer, even if they don't follow Jesus. You want me to submit? Peter, you're not living in the same world that I'm living in. How could they continue to endure this type of life? I mean, think about it. Think about you. Think about if you were in that context. Wouldn't it be so much easier just to do what everybody else was doing? I mean, wouldn't it be so much easier to just do what's acceptable to the culture that they were in? Wouldn't it be so much easier to just sit on the pond, enjoy the corn of the barnyard as Meredith described it? Wouldn't it be easier to settle rather than to soar? You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, is this still not the case for followers of Jesus today? Are believers today still like exiles living in a land that's not their home? Are we faced with a culture that wants us to operate differently than God's word? Do we experience persecution because we believe something that's not popular to the culture around us? Of course this is still the case. Well, wouldn't it be so much easier just to settle for sin and selfishness and self-satisfaction rather than living for Jesus? Listen, this dangerous settling, this dangerous exchange of comfort over commitment is what we would call complacency. The self-satisfaction with an existing condition. Listen, the moment that we decide that settling for the pond is better than soaring in the skies, we have become complacent. And I don't know if you can Imagine this, but Peter knew that they, he knew that we would face this type of decision. He had been there before himself. You remember that late night as he stood in the face of his oppressors and he could claim Jesus or deny him? He took the easy way out. He denied rather than standing up. He'd been there. He knew what this decision would look like. He knew what it felt like to choose comfort over commitment. So he writes to his context, what would be the only thing to keep them from becoming complacent? What would be the only thing that would keep them from settling for comfort over commitment? For Peter, I think it was simple, and we read about it all throughout this letter but we really hone in on it in these verses that we are about to read. For Peter, it was simple. How would they battle complacency? How would they soar rather than settle? Well, for him, everything they did had to be done with the kingdom in mind. It had to be. There was no other way. 
than to remember this simple truth. This world is not their home. This current suffering is not the end. What you're enduring now is on this side of eternity, but there is a kingdom that you belong to. There is a family that you are a part of. There is a nation that is beyond this nation. You are a citizen of a, of a kingdom that is not of this world. You say, Danny, how do we keep from settling? How do we keep from being complacent? How do we look at all the things that Peter's written about? Yes, we're a royal priesthood. Yes, we're a holy nation. Yes, we're his possession. Yes, he wants to use us to proclaim his excellencies. But Danny, you don't understand. It's hard where I live. It's tough in my house. It's hard at work. It's tough to follow Jesus in this culture. Danny, for me, it would be so much easier just to quit be so much easier just to do what everyone else does. Well, all I can think about as I'm reading through this, this has to be the moment that Peter gets to as he's writing to exiles who are suffering all across the world for the name of Jesus. He's reminding them that though his words may be difficult, though suffering may be something we have to endure, though it may be tough on this side of eternity, this is not the end. This is not all we have to look for. This is why he writes this phrase in the very beginning of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 8. He writes this phrase, finally, all of you, right? Finally. Peter, you've written a lot of things to us. You've talked a lot about suffering. You said, as Jesus suffered, we should suffer. He laid down his life on a cross. Peter, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can keep going. I don't know if I can handle that anymore. And so Peter's realizing these moments, and he's like, okay, all of that, finally. Here's what I need you to listen to. Here's how you battle complacency. Here's how you don't quit. You don't give up. Here's how you keep going with the kingdom in mind. Let me show you a couple things Peter points out to us, not just them, but to us today. Here's what he recommends. Let me show you the first one. We need to develop our friendships with the kingdom in mind. You say, Danny, how do we keep going? How do we not fall to complacency? How do we choose commitment over comfort? Well, friends, I don't know about you, but I could never do what I do without friendships around me that push me to be more like Jesus. This is why Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, finally, all of you, right? He's talking about all of the church that's scattered about the world. All of you reading this letter, all of you right now in this building have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. You say, what's he talking about? He's talking about our relationships. He's talking about the people around us, how they should respond to us, how we should respond to them. He's talking about developing our friendships with the kingdom in mind. It's not just I want to be around good people. It's not just I like you or you smell nice. It's not just that you agree with everything that I say so we get along with each other. That's not what he's saying. He's saying develop friendships with the kingdom in mind. It's not even about you when it comes to relationships that you have. It's all about Jesus and for the sake of the kingdom. We can't keep moving forward in a culture that hates Jesus, in a world that doesn't care about the kingdom of heaven. We can't keep moving forward in a desolate place. We can't keep moving forward as exiles without friendships that push us to be more like Jesus. Now, he points out a couple of things that I just think are significant. 
The first key to this type of friendship is compatibility. He uses the phrase, have unity of mind. Now, he's not talking about unanimous. He's not talking about uniformity. It's not everyone looks and acts the same. It's not everyone agrees 100% on everything. That's not what he's talking about. As a matter of fact, I read from a commentary just this week, Peter isn't calling us to sing together in unison, but in harmony. Now, here's the difference. It means we all contribute our unique notes in a beautiful chorus that far surpasses any single note. Everybody don't want to hear you. But what happens when we sing together in harmony for the sake of the gospel? Peter's reminding them to develop their friendships, to continue to seek compatibility, not for us agreeing with each other, but for us pushing forward the one name that matters above every other name. He's saying develop your friendships with the kingdom in mind. Why would unity be so significant? Because listen, when all of us want to run all of our own different directions, when all of us want to be in control of everything around us, when all of us want it to be about me, here's what happens when a group of people come together with unity of mind. They don't let that happen. The main thing is what happens. Well, guess what, friends? The main thing is Jesus. That's why we need each other to continue to push and make us better and continue in unity of mind. Not sameness, not agreement, but collectively moving toward the greater purpose of Jesus being magnified. We need to develop our friendships with the kingdom in mind, and the first key is compatibility. Not that I like you or you like me, although that will happen. Why? Because we all like Jesus, and we're moving forward together in his name with the kingdom in mind. He shows us something else that I just think is significant. He uses the word sympathy. He's talking about in this moment another key, not just compatibility, but also compassion, right? We need friendships that are being developed with the kingdom in mind, with compassion being at its center. He says sympathy, which means to feel with someone. It carries the idea of suffering with someone. As a matter of fact, it's, all, it's used to describe Jesus in Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now listen, I love the way that the King James Version translates this verse. Instead of using the phrase, sympathize with our weaknesses, here's how it's translated. Touched with the feeling of our infirmities. This is the description of Jesus. Jesus knew sympathy because he experienced life as we do. Well, friends, how many of us can look around the room at the friendships that we have and the relationships that God's bringing about in our lives with the kingdom in mind? How many of us can see people going through things and dealing with issues and battling through whatever circumstance it is, and we have sympathy? Why? Because we've been there. We know what it's like to live this life. I'm always reminded of Jesus' compassion in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 9 puts it like this. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Do we have that type of compassion for one another? He uses the word sympathy. He also uses the phrase brotherly love. Now, this phrase is deeper than just someone that you see at church every week, although I hope that's also the case. 
The phrase carries the same affection that we would think of within our own family, like that of a sibling. Do we have friendships that run as deep as brothers or sisters? Now, I have two sisters, so I can think about this in the context of my own family. Two sisters that I don't always agree with, by the way. We're not extremely, uh, we're, not, we're not in 100% agreement. We don't always get along. I know that might surprise some of you, but we oftentimes fight like typical siblings do. However, I will tell you this. If anything happened to them, or if anything happened to their family, you better believe that this guy right here will move heaven and earth to help them in whatever way, to take care of them in whatever way. Why? Because they're my sisters. They're my family. And above, apart from my relationship with God, I am loyal to my family above everything else. Have we made these types of relationships in the context of the gospel? As a matter of fact, I want you to just think about how much more powerful our Christian family is than even just our blood family. Think about some of these things. Our Christian family, the church, we share the inheritance of the Lord. We share the instruction of the Lord. We share the institution of the Lord. We share the indwelling of the Lord. We share the ignition of the Lord. We share the imitation of the Lord. Listen, friends, do you have this type of friendships around you that are both compatible and compassionate? He uses one more phrase. He uses the word, the, the phrase, a tender heart. Now, this brings even more to the table on compassion. As a matter of fact, Paul uses the same word in Ephesians chapter 4 when he writes, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The writer of Hebrews describes it like this in Hebrews 5, 2 says, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, talking about a priest, since he himself is beset with weakness. Listen, we can be tender-hearted with people because we know what it's like to deal with the weakness of our flesh. Jesus was forgiving and accepting of all those who would come to him. Who are we to think that we are better than someone else? Friends, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are all sinners in this together. Are you developing friendships with the kingdom in mind? Listen, one key is certainly compatibility, right? Jesus as the sinner. Another key is compassion. Do you have sympathy, brotherly love, tenderheartedness? But I want to show you another key. It's the word courtesy. He uses the phrase, have a humble mind. Now, in this terminology, I think it depicts Jesus's the last shall be first type of mentality. Listen to this from Mark 10. It says, And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the greatest picture of humility. Though he was the best of us all, he humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. So if we think about Jesus and how he would lower himself, be the servant of all, even through death, then why wouldn't we display simple courtesy and humility before others? Listen, relationships matter. We need each other. How are you developing your friendships with the kingdom in mind? How are you developing the relationships around you so that you can continue to push forward for the sake of the gospel? Let me show you another thing, though. 
that Peter points out. If we're going to battle complacency, right? We don't want to give up. We don't want to give in to what's easiest. We don't want to let the comforts of this life outweigh the commitments that we have to Jesus. So what are we going to do? Well, certainly developing our relationships is huge when we have the kingdom in mind. But I want to show you the second thing that Peter brings out. We need to determine our fruits with the kingdom in mind. Determine our fruits. You say, Danny, what do you mean? What is your life producing for the kingdom of God? How are your actions? How's the way that you live? The decisions that you're making? How does that fruit that you are producing reflect the kingdom? Is it worth anything on the other side of eternity? Peter writes in verse 9, look at this, 1 Peter 3 verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Why repay when we can restore? You say, Danny, what do you mean? There's a beautiful picture of this in 2 Kings chapter number 5. The story goes about a guy named Naaman. He was the commander of the armies of the king of Syria. And whenever the Syrians uh, captured Israel, there's a story about a Hebrew girl who was made the servant, the slave of the wife of Naaman. And in the story, when she discovers that her master, Naaman, when she discovers that he has leprosy, Rather than hope for his demise, rather than be thankful that he got what was coming to him, rather than being angry with the person who, by the way, took her captive, she is property now of Naaman and his wife. She should have cursed him. She should have uh, taken him out in his sleep. She should have done anything else other than what she did. You know what she does? She tells her master, she tells Naaman what he can do for his leprosy to be cleansed. Instead of repaying him the evil that she should have longed to repay him for, instead she offers restoration. She says, you don't have to live this way. Even though I'm your slave, I'm your servant, there's something better. And she tells him how he can be healed. Imagine what it would look like if we determined that the fruits of our life would not be repaying evil for evil, even when we're justified in doing so, what if rather than repay, we decided to restore? What if we sought the redemption of Jesus in every life rather than what we feel like we deserve? Why repay evil for evil when we can restore evil to good? Peter goes on talking about our fruits. Look at verse 10. He says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Got another question for you. Why remain when we can repent? You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, Peter's quoting David from Psalm 34. David wrote this because of some recent decisions that he had made in his life. You see, David had recently lied to the priest in order to keep King Saul from knowing where he was and to get the priest to help him and his men. Due to this lie, David learned that King Saul killed the priest and all of the other priests. Eighty-five members of the priestly community 
to be in fact. The words of his mouth had made all these things possible. As a matter of fact, later after this, in Psalm 141, David would write these words, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Listen, David's not the only one in this category. Peter, too, knew what the deceit of the tongue could do as he remembers his own time of denying Jesus. Yet, can we remember something for just a moment? Though that's a horrible memory in Peter's life and certainly one of the tragedies of the gospel, Peter did not remain that way, and he doesn't want us to remain that way either. You know what Peter did? He repented and he moved on for the sake of Jesus. Why remain where we are when we can repent and live our lives for something better? You say, Danny, yesterday my fruits didn't really represent the kingdom of Jesus. I don't care about yesterday. What if we determined our fruits right now with the kingdom in mind that we were going to repent rather than remain? Peter goes on. Look at verse 11. Continue there. He said, let him seek peace and pursue it. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Hey, why ruin when we can return? Man, these are simple, practical instructions for having a good life. Don't do evil things. Check. Good advice, right? Pursue peace among all people. Check. I like that one, Peter. Sounds good. Display a life of righteousness rather than ruin. Check, Peter. These seem extremely simple. It's because they are. Why continue to live a life of sinfulness when Jesus has redeemed us? He's made us righteous so that we can return to what God desires. Simply put, here's the truth. The Lord is against those who do evil, and he is with those who do right. Our goal in life should always be to seek out what is good and to live in peace among all people. This would also include bringing people into peace by leading them to Jesus. Why ruin when we can return to being like Jesus and leading others to him as well. Listen, how do we keep complacency from taking over our hearts? Well, we need to develop our friendships with the kingdom in mind. Who do you have around you that's making you better, pushing you to be more like Jesus? Is your group of people continuously pulling you away? Or are you living, as Peter says, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind with those who are seeking after Jesus? We need to develop our friendships. Listen, we need to determine our fruits, right? With the kingdom in mind. Why do you live the way you live? Why do you make the decision that you're making? Why are you acting the way you're acting? Is it for you? Is it because it's what's best for your life? Is it because it's what's best for... Or are you doing what you're doing, making the decisions that you're making, acting like you're acting for the kingdom with Jesus in mind? Listen, we need to determine that the way in which we live, our fruits will be to seek the righteousness of God with the kingdom in mind and not ourselves. So what else does Peter show us? Let me show you this third one. We need to destroy our fears with the kingdom in mind. How do we keep from being complacent? We develop our friendships. How do we keep from being complacent? We determine our fruits. How do we keep from being complacent? We destroy our fears, all of this, by the way, with the kingdom in mind. Look at verse 13. Peter says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed 
Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Listen, living the way Peter has described in these verses will typically keep you out of trouble. This is why he says, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? For the most part, you do the things he's talking about, you're going to live a good life at peace with most people. Here's what one commentary writer says, says, for the most part, living this way, though strange in the world's eyes, will generally keep believers out of trouble. If you pay your debts, normally you'll stay financially sound. When you stay sexually pure, usually you avoid disappointment and jealousy. If you behave with humility and peace, most often you'll keep from making enemies. And when you maintain close relationships with other believers, you'll always have people to help you through tough times. So in general, Peter's advice for wise living will bring good, not harm from others. But even when it doesn't work out that way, Living this way has a lasting advantage. Why? Because the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend their prayer. Listen, Peter reminds us of our lasting reward in heaven for serving Jesus. The worst thing that someone can do to us is kill the body, but then we would be with Jesus. Even their worst is good for us. So Peter agrees with James when he writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Listen, there's a great reformer known in the 1500s in England who kind of paints a picture of this for us. It's not pleasant, but it's true. His name was Hugh Latimer. Latimer preached the gospel in great power throughout the common people because he preached in a way they could understand it in a time when it wasn't understandable. He was loved by all and encouraged greatly to preach in various locations and at various times. However, all of this changed when Mary Tudor came to the throne. She hated the gospel and the reformers' efforts to change the world, and on October 16th, 1555, Hugh Latimer, along with Bishop Ridley, were burned at the stake in Oxford as heretics. As they were bound to the stake, Latimer said to Ridley, We shall this day, my Lord, light such a candle in England as shall never be extinguished. And so they did. As an unknown poet put it, Latimer's light shall never go out, however the winds may blow it about. Latimer's light has come to stay till the trump of a coming judgment day. Did he die? Yes. Did he light a fire that was not easily extinguished? A hundred percent. Listen, there may be hard times in this day, but one day the Lord will bring all things into submission under his feet, and all those who have given all for the name of Jesus will be rewarded and rejoice in the splendor of Christ. Peter speaks this truth, this promise from experience. He once was a coward who denied even knowing Jesus, but that changed the moment that Jesus defeated death and the grave. Nothing could stop what Jesus was going to do. As a matter of fact, shortly after Peter's denial, Luke records this in Acts chapter 5, verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Listen, switch turned on, right? What was it? I think Peter realized that complacency was a whole lot worse than pushing through in his commitment to Jesus. One writer put it like this, complacency is a blight that saps energy, 
dulls attitudes and causes a drain on the brain. The first symptom is satisfaction with things as they are. The second is rejection of things as they might be. Good enough becomes today's watchword and tomorrow's standard. Complacency makes people fear the unknown, mistrust the untried, and abhor the new. Like water, complacent people follow the easiest course downhill. They draw false strength from looking back. Listen, those trapped in complacency will have the tendency to look back down when God wants them, or will have the tendency to back down when God wants them to push ahead. Say, Danny, how do we battle it? Well, we develop our friendships with the kingdom in mind. How do we battle it? Well, we determine our fruits, our actions with the kingdom in mind. How do we battle it? We destroy our fears with the kingdom in mind. But Danny, it'd be so much easier just to do what everybody else does. I agree. Danny, I won't suffer if I just blend in, if I just go with the flow, if I just head downhill like the rest of the water. I agree. Danny, you don't understand. I'm scared to live the way that Jesus is telling us to live. Well, listen, friends, the only way to destroy that type of fear is with the kingdom in mind. This is not our home. Let me show you this last thing, and I'm done. Danny, how do we battle complacency? Well, we need to defend our faith with the kingdom in mind. Here's how Peter closes out this section, verse 15. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for, the re- for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Don't miss this phrase, being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Listen, the word for defense means to give an account. It's where we get our our English word for apologetics. This is where all the texts of suffering through submission come to full understanding. Though our suffering We hold tightly to the hope that we have in Christ, knowing that we will have the opportunity to share that with others. This is why the blood of the martyrs, this is why guys like Latimer and his death would become the seed of the church. Through their testimony, through their message of hope in the face of suffering, the world would see the love of Christ in full swing. Jesus, too, would suffer at the hands of the ungodly so that the world could receive the love of God. Why would we not suffer as Jesus did so that the world could receive that same love? Can I just tell you something? That defense didn't mean fighting or smacking people around for the sake of Jesus. That defense meant that we would suffer for the sake of opportunities to defend how we can continue on in the midst of our circumstances. The answer had been and always will be Jesus. That's why Peter wrote this simple little note, by the way, do it with gentleness and respect. He's not saying fight. He's not saying argue. He's not starting uh, saying start a revolution that will turn everything upside down. No, what he's saying is when you suffer, as these things happen, you continue on for Jesus, taking every opportunity to share with people, make a defense with why you can live this way, why you can battle complacency, why you can endure suffering even when no one else would and everybody else would say you're crazy. Make a defense. Tell them what Jesus has done for you and what he can do for them. You say, Danny, it'd be so much easier to give up. I agree. 
I thought about this passage of Scripture with something that we read recently in our Bible reading plan. It comes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 7, Paul writes, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. You say, Danny, I don't want to be afflicted. I don't want to be crushed. I don't want to be perplexed. I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want any of these things. Well, friends, let me tell you something. We can endure all of this. Why? Because though we are simple jars of clay, we hold a treasure that is beyond worth. You say, Danny, what do you mean? The only way to battle against complacency, the only way to keep from giving up when it would be so much easier is for us to remember and always keep the kingdom in mind. Why are we developing these friendships? It's with the kingdom in mind. Why are we determining our fruits to live in righteousness to Jesus? It's with the kingdom in mind. Why, Danny, do we defend our faith with gentleness and respect? It's with the kingdom in mind. Why do we destroy the fears that tell us to back down when we should push ahead? It's with the kingdom in mind. All that we are doing is for the kingdom. So let me just ask you something. You might be here this morning. <laughs> it's going to be really hard to have the kingdom in mind if you're not a part of it. You say, Danny, what do you mean? If you're not a follower of Jesus, you do belong to this world. This is as good as it gets, but it doesn't have to stay that way. Friend, you can become a part of a much better kingdom. You can become a part of a family beyond your imagination if you would surrender your life to Jesus. Listen, if that's you, you need to do that. I'll be in the lobby in just a few moments. I'd love to help you. But probably the case is that majority of the people in this room, your response doesn't have to do with surrendering your life to Jesus and salvation. But, but I bet it does have to do with surrendering your life to Jesus every day as you commit to follow him as you said you would. So you say, Danny, what do I do? It's so much easier just to do what everybody else does. I agree. So much easier just to sit on the pond. Who cares about flying anymore? I agree. It's easier. But what happens when we think about the kingdom? Are we doing what God's asked us to do? Are we living how he's designed us to live? Do you feel it? Do you feel that same fluttering as those mallards on the pond when the geese flew by? Do you feel it? The reason you feel it is because you may want complacency, but the Spirit in you has never longed for that. No, no, the power of the Spirit in you wants to change the world, wants to turn it upside down. So, Danny, how do we do it? Well, it starts with simple things that Peter talked about in 1 Peter chapter 3 developing our friendships, right, with the kingdom in mind. It, it begins with determining our fruit with the kingdom in mind, destroying our fears with the kingdom in mind, defending our faith with the kingdom in mind. It starts with the kingdom. Are you doing what you do every day with the kingdom in mind? If not, then maybe this is a great opportunity for us to repent and ask God to continue to put the kingdom before our minds as we live every day for him. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. Thank you, Jesus. You're awesome. God, thank you so much.